The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Amen. It is well with our souls. It's been great to hear you sing that this morning and uh, to be reminded of why it's well with our souls. We gather around this table. Here at White Ridge Baptist Church, we have the practice of gathering monthly at this place. And uh, we believe that it's not a Baptist table, it's the table of the Lord. And so anyone who is among us who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you are trusting in Him for your salvation, then uh, He's here and He bids you come and to receive the bread and the cup. You know, I uh, remember studying in church history way back in my seminary days. And uh, in church history, over 100 years ago in Europe, there was a splinter of a denomination. A church split from another church and started a whole new denomination and I'm not going to tell you which denomination it is, but I'm going to tell you that the name of the controversy was called the Lifter Controversy. And the Lifter Controversy was all surrounding the fact that the leaders of the church disagreed around the, the practice of this meal, the Lord's Supper. There were some that believed that the words of institution of the Lord's Supper should be stated before the, uh, the emblems were lifted or touched. And the other ones believed that they should be stated as the cup or bread was being lifted <laughs> to your mouth. And so because they couldn't figure out how to resolve that awful conflict, uh, they divided. They divided fellowship. And the very thing that was meant to unite the church of Jesus Christ in a common meal under his lordship and his, his love at the cross ended up dividing um, today, I wanna, we want to give you an opportunity to serve one another. We often come to this moment in the meal, and we kind of go into our own little tabernacles. We go into our own little prayer closet, and we sort of just think, me and Jesus. And we end up having a communion meal with Jesus, but not necessarily with the body of Christ. I want to think that differently today as we ponder that we are not only part of the vertical worship in knowing Jesus, but the horizontal worship in the fact that we together know him as the body of Christ. And so to help to do that a little bit, we're going to be doing it a little differently this morning. The bread and the cup are both on one tray. And so what you're going to do is you're going to receive the tray, and the natural inclination is that when you receive something, you immediately take but you're not going to do that this morning. You're going to take the tray and pass it to the next person, and they have full control of the tray before you then, they serve you, either your bread and cup, okay? And then they pass it on to the next person, and the next person has full control of the tray, and they serve that person. And so uh, we're going to serve one another and not just think of ourselves. We're going to be the body of Christ today. Good morning. Um... I see by the clock, I could almost say good afternoon, but um, it's still morning. Um, my name is Carla Litke. I was asked to share a little bit about my giving journey as we head into this exciting time of the capital funds campaign. Giving and tithing has always been modeled in my family. From my earliest memories, I remember my dad in his little blue box in his desk, putting away the money each paycheck for the church, um, and that was the tithe that we put away each month. I feel that God really blessed that act of worship, as I don't remember a time ever growing up that we were in need or in want. When I got married, 
as a couple, we too decided that we would commit to setting aside 10% of our income as a tithe to God. We would also contribute to other charitable projects, but the tithe was for the local church. We instilled that value in our children as well and spoke to them about it, even when they were very young and getting their allowance. They would gather out their nickels and dimes for their 10% and take it to Sunday school for their offering. Again, God had seen fit to bless our family through the years. However, I must say, we have not really had to be sacrificial or challenged in our giving so far. As we head into this building project, we have been talking a lot about what our role should be and how we can contribute. As we talk and pray about what our pledge should be, it's sometimes scary. As Wayne is self-employed, uh, income is, can be variable and we're not always sure what's going to be coming in in any year. I don't yet know what our pledge will be. We continue to pray about it and talk about it, but I feel that God is giving us an opportunity to put faith in action and to trust him to continue to meet our needs. I'm so very thankful to be a member of this congregation. I'm also very excited about what this new building will be and how it can help to expand our ministry and outreach and how it has been so bathed in prayer throughout this whole process. I'm excited and also a little scared about where God will lead our family in this project, but I know that he is faithful. Thank you very much. Amen. Thank you, Carla, for sharing. And uh, it's really important that uh, just as we talked about during the Lord's Supper, how we, we don't have this privatized faith that we all go into our own inner closet and just me and Jesus walk it out, but that together we are in a church family that is walking it out. And, and it is good to hear from brothers and sisters in Christ. We're all working through similar uh, concerns together. And uh, so in these Sundays, we're certainly trying to uh, have each other share well with, with each other about, about the issues at stake and how God is leading us. Amen. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great... All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Okay, so you're not all that far from the nursery school. You know, no one knows exactly the origin of that nursery rhyme nor the meaning of it. Uh, various theories abound uh, on where it came from and what it means, but nobody knows for sure. I, and so because of that, I think a lot of people employ it to accomplish some of their own ends. I read a book in 1990s about uh, this. It was a sociology book about life in Canada by a Christian sociologist named Reginald Bibby. His uh, book was called Mosaic Madness, The Poverty and Potential of Life in Canada. He quotes this nursery rhyme and he says this, he says, pluralism in Canada breaks the whole into its protected parts, but it doesn't put the parts back together again. That's an insightful comment about life in Canada. Many forces at work, both in and outside of the church, that are breaking apart people, society, families, marriages, all kinds of ways. And it's dividing and pulling apart and separating, but it has little power to ever put that stuff back together again. 
individualism and racism and classism and pluralism and materialism, and there's just a whole bunch of selfisms that could be given that are pulling apart, have no power to put back together. Humpty Dumpty, of course, is indeed a commentary on humanity. Humanity has had a great fall. If you want to read about the fall of humanity, you can open your Bibles and read about it in Genesis chapter 3. This great fall that humanity has had has resulted in us being broken. Male and female, every aspect of humanity has been broken. And the brokenness that, that has been caused by the great fall of humanity is so severe and so invasive and so all-encompassing that it will only be healed by the Creator that put us together in the first place. Only in God our Creator can humanity, with its great fall, be ever put back together again and healed. It's an incredible message that God has given us. It's a message that's so desperately needed by the world around us. And we need to continually press into Jesus Christ ourselves, for we are in the process of the healing of that brokenness that God wants to heal. Called sin. If we will humble ourselves, it all begins with humbling ourselves before God, the Creator. And getting this vertical relationship reconciled and right. And then as we see the Lord Jesus Christ renew us inwardly and outwardly and becoming the new humanity that God has created us to be in all His righteousness and glory, we then have the grace to reach out and extend ourselves outward horizontally to the people around us that are so broken and so in need of the healing that we have experienced in Jesus Christ. Now you might ask, well, what does this have to do with a sermon series on 1 Kings that is talking about the building of Solomon's temple? Well, it has everything to do with it because, you see, God has only one purpose on earth and for eternity, and that purpose was reflected in the building of Solomon's temple. I want to demonstrate that to you today. You see, God's purpose in the temple was always the twofold purpose that I just described, the vertical reconciliation with a holy God and the horizontal accumulation of God's people under the lordship of Him on this earth. You see, that's what the temple was all about. The very purpose of the temple, God said way back when Moses was commanded to build the temporary temple called the tabernacle, he said that I may dwell among my people. That was God's goal. God wants relationship with people on earth. He wants to come down. And so he wants to dwell among us. How is it possible that a holy God could come down and dwell among a sinful people? Well, that's what the temple was all about. All the rituals, all the sacrifices, all the priesthood, all the layers, all the washings, all the cleansings. It was all about somehow a holy God being and living among his people. And secondly, the temple was all about this incredible blessing to Abraham. I will bless you, and through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. Jesus reminded us in the New Testament, my house, God said, will be called a house of prayer for all nations. 
And so we see Jesus coming in his, in his ministry in the New Testament and in the Gospels. We read about how Jesus took all of the Old Testament, all the law and the prophets, and he just summed it up into two commands. A vertical command and a horizontal command. He said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you should love your neighbor as you love yourself. And that's what the temple's all about. The temple's all about learning to love God, have a relationship with the living God. And then making it a place where all nations could come and understand and know the living and true creating God. Well... Our outline this morning is quite simple. We have two points to share. I'm going to take one source from the Old Testament, and we're going to look at Solomon's construction of his temple. And then we're going to turn to the New Testament, and we're going to look at what the counterpart in the New Testament is to the temple, which is you and I, the church of the living God. And so we're going to look at this scripture and consider what it is that God has to teach us. Let's begin then by looking at in uh, the scriptures, the passage that's that first, uh, first Kings 6 and 7, we're going to be looking at various passages in those verses, and we're going to be talking about the construction of Solomon's temple. Let's start by this comment. Let's start by reading the last verse of chapter 6 and the first verse of chapter 7 in First Kings. It says in First Kings chapter 6, verse 38, the last verse, it says that Solomon spent seven years building the temple. That's the way chapter 6 ends. Now, I want you to remember that those chapter divisions are put on, on by people, not by God. So don't stop breathing and just carry on 7 verse 1. What does it say? It says that it took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a very inquisitive mind, and I wonder to myself, why is it that the author of Kings and Chronicles decided to say those two things back to back? Like, like why are you comparing that it took seven years to build the temple, and it took 13 years to build his palace? I, I don't know where your mind goes, but, but I, my mind goes like, well, what's that all about? Now, I want to say, without going into too much conjecture, that there is nothing in Scripture that condemns Solomon for building a palace that was way bigger than the temple and that took almost twice as long to finish. I don't believe it cost as much, necessarily, because when you look at all the gold and silver and costly stones that were used in the temple, I'm not sure what the palace, if it could have had that much. But the point is, nothing in Scripture condemns Solomon for this. In fact, when we look at the scriptures and kings and chronicles that are accounting for this history, we actually read that God says to Solomon over and over again, as he said to David, if you will just follow me, if you will keep your heart right before me, if you will serve me and not serve other gods, even as your father David did, he said, I'm going to bless you, Solomon. I think it's a, I think it's a comment just to make in passing, but it's worth noting we live in wonderful homes, don't we? We have homes. Sometimes God leads you into a season, maybe when you're not in this, such a lovely home. The point is that God, I don't think, is condemning for living in a nice home. Because, you see, God looks way past all the veneer of our living accommodation. And He looks to the heart always. 
And he looks to the heart and he says, can, can you say today that your heart belongs to Jesus Christ, regardless of what home you live in? I think it's important to note that. And that when God comes asking, uh, this is what I'd like to do, are you able to enjoy doing it for the glory of God without worried about your own self-interests? I don't think we can walk by that verse without commenting that way. Well, the first design of the tabernacle was the pattern that God gave for the temple. It was found in Exodus chapter 25, given to Moses. The building basically had three essential areas. There was an outer court, there was a holy place, and then there was the holy of holies, the most important place in the temple. And some people have said that, that it looks like the human being itself, that there is this outer body, and there is a soul, and then there is the inner spirit where God's spirit dwells to make us temples of the living God. This place was a dwelling place for God. It was the center of worship for not only Israel, but all God-fearing Gentiles. It was a symbol of forgiveness and grace and animal sacrifices that were offered there. All of these sacrifices only pointed forward to Jesus Christ who would become God's gift for salvation, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. In fact, everything in some way symbolically pointed forward to Jesus Christ. He is the true temple. That's why in John chapter 2, when when Jesus is near the temple, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And the scriptures say that he was referring to his own body. You see, Jesus is the temple. Everything pointed to him. For example, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, inside that box was the Ten Commandments. And again, we were reminded that Jesus Christ fulfills the law on our behalf. There was a piece of Aaron's rod, the priest, and we're reminded that Jesus is our priest between us and the living God. There was a piece of the manna that the Israelites had in the wilderness, yet it did not rot, and it is a reminder that Jesus is the bread from heaven, the bread of life for our souls. We do not have time to go into all of the incredible imagery that is found in the temple that all points to Jesus Christ. But the temple also pointed forward to the believer in Jesus Christ. And in that way, God indwelling us being temples, individually our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 19, but also collectively we are the temple of the living God. Now, one of the physical features that is in the temple that you cannot avoid, and I had to check this with a commentary or two just to be sure I wasn't off base, but could not read 1 Kings 6 and 7 without seeing imageries of the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden. And, and it's incredible to, to look. I, I, don't, I won't say the references, but <clears throat> all of this is found in chapter 6 and 7 of 1 Kings. The detailed plans of the of the the temple had gourds and open flowers, flowers that were blooming, in other words, open flowers. uh, They were all carved out of cedar in the main hall, the holy place. In the inner and the outer holy places, there were carved palm trees and open flowers surrounded by all the gold cherubim, the angels. The doors to the inner sanctuary had carvings of palm trees and flowers. The pillars of the temple made of cast bronze 
were, had hundreds, hundreds of carved pomegranates, lilies, and gourds. There were movable stands and basins and other furniture in the temple that had wreaths and lilies and palm trees carved into them. In the Holy of Holies, the very center of, of the worship, was a floral arrangement that was made of pure gold. A floral arrangement made of pure gold. And from all the angelic and the botanical imageries and designs that we can see, I think, many others think, that God was pointing His people back to the Garden of Eden. Now, why would that be important? I believe this. I believe it was important because that was the last time that God the Father could come down and walk among and dwell among His people in unhindered fellowship. See, that's what happened in Genesis 1 and 2. God could walk with Adam and Eve, and, and, and the moment they sinned, all of a sudden they hid from God, and God could no longer have that fellowship in the garden. And we see that man was banished from the garden. That was the last time God had come down and had fellowship. Now the temple was designed so that God could dwell among His people. And so we see this incredible pointing backward. But the temple also pointed forward. It fo pointed forward to the new Jerusalem. In, in the book of Revelation, which is a description of what things are to come, in the book of Revelation, I counted this past week 16 times that the word temple is used. John's revelation on the island of Patmos is this picture of heaven, the new Jerusalem, this heavenly city, and it has a temple. Sixteen times the word temple is used. Chapter 7, verse 15, it says, Those who have come out of the great tribulation are before the throne of God. They serve Him day and night in His temple, and He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. In chapter 11, verse 19, it says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened up, and within the temple was the Ark of the Covenant. John's description of heaven is describing this temple that is opened up for the people of God to come in. An incredible passage in Revelation chapter 21, the second last chapter of the book, and there's an incredible passage where John says in chapter 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a voice from the throne saying... Now, what did the voice from the throne say? Listen to these key words. It says, now, now the dwelling of God is with men. See, that's what happened in the garden. That's what was the purpose of the temple. And in heaven, that's what the goal of all history is. Now the dwelling of God is with men. And He will live with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them. And He'll be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there'll be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order's passed away. 
because God will be there. And then we go on in chapter 21, and he says later on in, in verse 22, it says this, John's revelation, he says, I did not see a temple in the city. Just a minute, John, you just told us about the temple you saw. What does he say? He says, I did not see a temple in the city. Why? Because the Lord God Almighty, incredible, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. <laughs> that is fellowship with the living God. That's what you and I were created for, for all of eternity. And so we see not only a pointing back, the Solomon's temple was pointing back to Eden when they had this fellowship with God, but it's pointing forward to this heavenly Jerusalem, this time when, when God will be our dwelling place for all of eternity. Now let's move into the New Testament, and let's take a look at just one passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where we, the people of God, the church, is described as the temple of the living God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Don't you know that you yourselves, plural, the church, are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? The word that Paul uses for temple there is not the word in Greek that could have been used for the general temple grounds. It is the word used of the holy of holies. You, church, are the holy of holies. You know the place, the place where the high priest once a year would go in with an offering of sacrifice. They'd tie a rope around his ankle in case he was struck dead by the glory of God. And in that place, he would fellowship momentarily through mediation and, and mist and incense and, and sacrifice. He would fellowship with God. He said, you, you're, you're that. You're that church. You're that temple. God is in our midst in that way. And he says, that's the word he uses. And notice that it's, it's not individual. It's together we're this temple. Now let's go back to verse 10 and see what Paul develops here. By the grace God has given me, he said, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But everybody needs to be careful how he builds, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Paul is using the building metaphor to talk about what it means to build your life on the foundation of Jesus Christ and what it means for you to influence the other people around you and them to build their lives on Jesus Christ. So the first thing does Paul is he looks back, just like we talked about with Solomon's temple, looking back. But Paul doesn't look back to Garden of Eden. Paul looks back to the cross. He says there's no foundation that can be laid other than the one already laid, and it's Jesus Christ. You see, Paul, in his 13 letters in the New Testament, if you were to read them, you would find that Paul references the cross of Jesus Christ more than anybody else. That was his reference point. He says that's where our foundation is, the cross of Jesus Christ, the death, the resurrection, and what Jesus has done, that's the foundation we build on. Either you build on that foundation, or you are not building anything that's going to last eternally. That's Paul's statement. But Paul does not only look back, he also looks forward. And in verse 13, he looks forward. He says, now everybody should be careful how he builds, 
Because one, what's going to happen is that the, the quality of how you build is going to be tested by fire, verse 13, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. And he says, the day will bring it to light. Now, what is the day? Martin Luther used to say, I only have two days on my calendar. He says, I have today, and I have the day. I wish all of you could have been with us yesterday morning at men's breakfast when Daryl Penner shared with us the journey that he and Mel and the girls went through in the last few years and how incredibly God was faithful. He said that the days that they used to have so filled on the calendars were, were seen differently in the light of eternity. You see, the day that, that, that's talked about here is the day that is appointed for every one of us. It's the day that we're going to all stand before the Lord and give an account. In verse 12, we read these things. We read that in the building up of our own lives and in the building of lives around us, Paul is not talking just to pastors here. He's talking to the church at Corinth. He says there's six materials that you could choose from to build with. And he lists them, and, and it's very clear that the first three are combustible, non-combustible materials, and the second three are combustible materials. He says you can use gold, silver, and costly stone to build with your life, or you can use wood, hay, or straw to build with your life. And whichever one you build with, the day will bring it to light. What will a day have? The day will have this fire that comes down and, and it burns upon the gold, silver, costly stones and, it, and it'll refine and it'll maintain because it's non-combustible. But if it's made up of wood, hay, and straw, then you're not going to have a lot left. What is Paul talking about? In simple terms, he's talking about the, in, the entire sum of your life impact. In simple terms, he's talking about all the good deeds. Jesus said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, neither thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, imagine it this way. Imagine that you are... Imagine that we take the metaphor of going on a plane and the luggage that you carry on that flight to heaven represents your good deeds. In other words, just think about anything at all that is to your credit that you have done good in this world for as many years as you have it. Now, I know that the departure date for many people, seems to have come way too early on this flight to heaven. And I know of many seniors that they, they just could, it could not come soon enough, their flight to heaven. And I know that some people will, will get on that plane to heaven and they'll only have carry-on luggage. Good deeds enough to carry with you. 
There'll be other Christians that will have not only their carry-on luggage, but they'll have their two check bags, more good deeds. Then there'll be the other maybe super saints, seen as super saints on this earth, and they not only have their carry-on and their two check bags, but they've got the extra luggage, that overweight stuff that you have to pay for and stuff. So we arrive at the, the, at the heaven's gate, and, and there we are, and we watch our luggage coming down the conveyor belt toward us. And we think it's going to come right off, but instead it takes a detour and it goes around to another room. That room is called the testing room. And all the luggage is falling into these individual bins with our names on them. And as they go through the conveyor belt, this incredible, huge, heavenly torch of fire comes down upon the bin with your name on it, and it torches, and it just burns and glows for a moment upon the good deeds that you've accumulated over your entire lifetime. And if they're made of gold and silver and costly stone, they survive. There's a little cinders or some ashes in the bottom of the bin, but they come around and they come down toward you. You pick up your luggage and you walk towards the heavenly gate and God says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in. But my, my concern for me is I, I wonder if I'm going to see a lot of wood, hay, and straw in my bin and I might arrive in heaven with a whole bunch of that luggage. But when it goes through that testing room and the fire of God tests the motives of my heart, the attitudes of my service, the way that I already boasted on earth about what I've done and told everybody instead of waiting for God to tell me in heaven well done. The way that you know what it means, don't you? I wonder if when the torch of God comes down, it's going to just... I'm going to end up being able to carry it with my hands. And as I walk through the gate, I don't know how, how I'm going to feel. And the Bible says, Paul says, and some will, just as escaping the flame, some will get in. By the skin of your teeth, you'll get in. Again, I'm not talking about good works that saves you. I'm talking, the foundation is Jesus. There's no other foundation you can lay. You're saved by the grace of God in Jesus. This is all talking about what is the sum total of your life? What are you building on? And, and the lives that you're influencing, that, that school that you got moved to, all of a sudden God says, you know, those people around you, I want you to pour Jesus Christ. Build them up in Jesus that new job that you've got, you know, I put you there because the people around you, I want you to influence them for Jesus. I want you to help them put their life on Him and build them up in Christ. And friends, I, I would not be preaching this if I was not convinced that the bricks and the mortar and the money that's going to, to go to this project on McGilvery if I thought that moth and rust will destroy and thieves will break in and steal, and that's all that that building was about, and that it was not going to be storing up treasure in heaven, and it's not going to be all about ministry that's done with gold and silver and costly stone, I wouldn't be championing it at all. 
But as long as God's people, you, are in charge of leading this ministry in White Ridge Baptist Church, I believe that that building can result in eternal praise to God by many more lips and hearts that do not yet know him. I'd invite the worship team to come and to lead us as we conclude the service. And I'd ask that you just ask the Lord to show you just your own life's end. How is it that you are called upon by God to just extend your influence of those around you and to be the person that God wants you to be? Thank you.